You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. Today, we're talking about advice for SaaS CEOs considering an exit, metrics that drive higher valuations, and we'll dive into financial versus strategic buying decisions as well. To help us, we have with us Lowell Rickliffe, founder and managing partner at Traction Advising M&A. Lowell, thank you so much for taking time, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Chad. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. So we always start with just an oddball question so that our audience gets to know you a little bit better. And I'm always curious to know, um, those that know you largely from work, what would they be surprised to learn about, you know, from a passion standpoint, something you're passionate about that they may be surprised to, to hear about? I love mentorship and I love global travel. So I've been able to combine the two volunteering to uh, mentor companies in uh, uh, countries like Georgia and Uganda, wow. Northern Italy, a number of different places. And I've just found that to be a, a great way to genuinely get to know the, the local culture and the local scene, very different than being a tourist. So that's, that's <laughs> something I'm different. super passionate about. And, and, and so, of course, through the pandemic, not as much not as much travel, unfortunately, I would assume. Not as much. No, I had my first trip to Portugal. I actually, got back last week, so that was. But it's been two years. Yeah, with not not leaving these four walls very yeah. much. <laughs> nice. Well, I'm glad you're getting back to that. So, all right, let's let's start with just kind of how did you get into the M and A game? I mean, was there did did we wake up one day and, and you know say uh, as you were playing with your toys at Christmas, I'm going to go into M and A, or was there some <laughs> other you know other path? I'm just kind of curious how one ends in the M and A. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a good question. Yeah. I, I, as a kid, I didn't say I want to be an investment banker when I grow up. Um, I was computer science, electrical engineer. I went down the technical sales route with the Fortune 500 company, Rockwell Automation. Ended up as a, as a global vice president. I managed their software business in the Americas for three years and then was um, chief revenue officer, COO, CEO of three software technology companies scaled one from a million to 50 million, um, had an exit to uh, WPP, scaled another one from 10 to 120, sold that to private equity, and then co-founded a, a, a fintech company that was sold to a, a small strategic. And then along the way, uh, acquired, it was a, a part of acquiring and integrating uh, about a dozen companies uh, between the four companies. And became very familiar with the M&A process and worked very closely with a number of different bankers on that process. And, and yeah, I didn't know any different, but I, I was always, they didn't add a lot of help to the process. They were organizers. They're all very, very smart, but weren't natural salespeople, didn't have technology backgrounds. And so when it came time to sell the company where I was a co-founder, you know, I had a, a, a strong enterprise selling background and just thought, that selling our small technology company was more like selling a technology product than it was selling a financial instrument. And I just thought we could do a better job. And so we ran the process ourselves and we were successful. One of our investors asked us to help them with another project, a company that they invested in. And I, I just looked around and just thought there are a lot of companies that are, uh, you know, SaaS companies are financially relatively simple. And in theory, they're they're infinitely scalable, and there's just a different way to sell and position them. And so, uh, open traction five years ago, and added my partner Mark in London a year ago. We've got a small team, and um, 
turns out there are a lot of very good companies out there that that appreciate the help. So it's it's been a lot of fun. It's great. That's excellent. So when you're working with these companies, you got a SaaS company that's considering an exit, and they come to you. What's the what's the first piece of advice you give them, and and why is it so important? You know, I guess the first thing I do is try to understand what their objectives are. Is you know, and because people have different. Some people are burned out, right? They they want out. Yep. Others just want help. Like they've been going it alone for a long time, and and they want you know whether it's capital, whether it's professional advice. But I really try to understand what they're trying to accomplish so we can help them accomplish those goals. As far as kind of practical advice, I think I, I, my advice to them is, you know, get your back office in order. You know, I kind of, it sounds mundane, but things like IP assignment, you know, do you, you know, the original founders, did they all sign those? If one left on maybe not great terms and they didn't sign an IP assignment, you know, if, Probably have to get a sign before close. That can be uncomfortable. Yeah, financials often uh, smaller SaaS companies they they run on cash financials. Buyers will want to look at accrual. Right. Um, if you don't do it, they'll they'll do a quality of earnings run on it and. And also just make sure it's accurate. Sometimes you you know they'll have a part. I get it. You know if if you've not had investors and had to present your financials you know to a board on a regular basis. Often this might be the first time that you've done it. So and you may have years of if you've had a part time bookkeeper just putting things together. Nothing malicious, but it just may not be accurate, and it it needs to be accurate. So. And the other thing is, probably, well, this is more than one thing. Uh, alignment on valuation, I guess, is just just to kind of you know, I, I when I was co-founder, I in pitching, raising money, I thought I knew um, how to sell a company or who would buy it. Um, but now that I'm on the other side, and I talk to literally thousands of of buyers, you know, from the value buyers to the the high flyers, I know what they'll pay for. I know what they'll buy. I know what they're interested in, and I know what they'll pay. So I I try to make sure that that the the expectations are are realistic or at least in alignment with what what we see okay and so when when the companies you know if they and I've, I've experienced the the executives that get the burnout myself so when you, <laughs> when you tell them they need to clean up their back office and and you know basically get their house in order and stuff like that are there specific metrics that either buyers are looking at or the the SaaS executives should focus on amplifying or optimizing that's going to increase their valuation or the speed with which they sell. Yeah, um, and that's you know I, I it's quite common and, and honestly I probably did this the same myself when I was you know on the other side. But it's it's a little bit like your house when you put it up for sale. You know, fresh coat of paint. You know, neutral <laughs> furniture. There there are things you can do to get an extra you know five, ten, fifteen percent that doesn't take a lot of work or money. It's the same thing with your company. There are things that you can do. Uh, there are some short-term things that you can do a few months ahead of time. Ideally, you know, a year or two ahead of time, you've been thinking about some of these things. But ultimately, the reason people pay a premium for SaaS companies is is the reliability of the revenue stream. So, you know, retention and growth are are really the two biggest drivers of of value. So, if you've got Good retention. Um, if you've got positive net revenue retention, so if your your ongoing clients continue to buy more, that's a really positive sign, and they'll and they'll pay a premium for that. The other extreme is if you've got you know fifty percent annual churn, 
you could argue it's not even really SaaS. It's not a long-term contract. It's almost like on average, people are buying a, a two-year license and that's not very valuable. Growth is the other thing. You know, if you've got 100% growth, you are you are very desirable. If you've got 20 to 30% growth, I'd say that's that's the vast majority of companies are kind of on this linear growth path, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50%, which is, which is absolutely fine. It's actually good. Even flat isn't necessarily bad. It's, it's not great, but declining revenue is tough. You know, one of, I had an acquire once tell me no one wants to catch a falling knife. You know, they just don't know where it's, where it's going to go. The kind of, kind of a graphic thing. Um, but you know, those are two big ones, you know, um, you know, size matters, right? I mean, hundred million dollar AR companies have higher multiples than $10 million companies, than $5 million companies. And then, then, you know, $1 million companies are, are, can be tough as well. And then EBITDA, you see anecdotal things where companies lose burning tons of cash, get sold for big multiples, but, uh, that's the minority. Um, most, acquirers, most strategics are, are valued on multiples of EBITDA. So profitability does matter. You don't have to have a lot, but if you're you know, burning VC cash, losing a lot of money, that will make you less attractive to some buyers. Doesn't mean you can't be sold. And the other thing is probably uh, target market. You know, how big is the target market and be able to identify the addressable target market that you've got. So that's clear up front. And so when we think about those buyers, you know, you, you break them down into financial versus strategic. Uh, and so kind of get profiles on both of those. When, when those people are looking for companies, how does the lens they're looking through change? Are they looking for different metrics? Are they evaluating in different ways? What are the files on those two look like? You know, they're very different animals, although uh, there's probably three different categories. So you've got like a pure strategic and then you've got a pure financial that will buy you as a platform company with the goal of growing you organically and potentially bolting on other companies. But then you've got sort of this third category where you've got a, a, a private equity firm that owns a platform and they want, and you're the add-on to that platform. So the, the company that's owned by the private equity firm is effectively a strategic, right? And you're being bolted on, but you've got a private equity sponsor. So, so that's a little bit different. And ultimately, the biggest difference is, you know, I tell people, if you've got 100 customers and you're bought by private equity, well, to get to 200 customers takes a lot of hard work, right? You're going to double it, but it's organic. If you're bought by a strategic and the strategic has a similar client base and they have 50,000 clients, you know, a relatively simple marketing campaign to those 50,000 clients and you get 10% adoption and you've got 5,000 clients where you had a hundred. So you're, you know, they can justify higher valuations because um, if they've got a large install base, they can accelerate your, your growth by 50 X. Whereas a financial buyer, you know, the financial, so the goals are just a little bit different as well. You know, financials, you know, they're managing someone else's money and they want to buy something, make it more valuable and sell it at a profit. They're, they're, they're entirely focused on their internal rates of return. All right. And so when we think about, about that whole process of buying and selling. Uh, I noticed in the prep material, you, you mentioned that um, investment banks struggle to sell software companies. And I'm kind of curious to understand what the, what the struggle you would, I would, I'm probably, I'm obviously wrong, but would think that an investment bank would be able to, to turn that around pretty quick. But in the prep materials, you mentioned they struggle. So I'd love to understand why they struggle and what kind of gets in the way. Yeah. 
I, I guess if you take a step back, people just assume, well, investment banks sell companies, which is true. But if you look at when they when they started, you know, they what would they do? They would they would raise money for companies that take companies public. And what did a company look like back then? Well, you had you had lots of inventory and you had work in process and you had big capital assets and you had lots of factories and employees and you might have had you know multiple countries and you had intercompany transfers and you had foreign exchange. They were very, very complicated financial in the background. And it was really important to have someone that could get that right, you know, so that you could understand what, you know, the return was on invested capital, all the metrics that you see on publicly traded companies. That's important stuff, right? And that's what that's what bankers are good at. That's what your CFO does in a company. But I've asked, I've yet for anyone to raise their hand. I mean, ask, has anyone ever hired a finance person to sell their technology product. I mean, <laughs> you, you, you just don't do that. Think about taking your favorite tax accountant, CFO in the world, right? And I have incredible respect for, I've always relied on them and put them in charge of sales. It's just not going to go well. It's a different skill set. You know, in complete fairness, imagine taking your, your favorite salesperson, your best salesperson and putting them in charge of the yeah, financials, right? That's, that's <laughs> not going to go. They're just really different skill sets. So when companies were financially complex, I'd say it was, it was 20% sales. It was 80%, you know, presenting the financials properly. Um, and but with SaaS companies, I don't think that's the case. It's not the case. And, it, you know, it's it's 20 percent financials. The financials tend to be you know pretty simple. It runs on Azure, it runs on AWS and understanding some of the SaaS metrics is important. But positioning the technology company, right, if you think of a strategic acquirer, you know, I'll use one example, a company Smartsheet bought one of our clients 10,000 feet. And 10,000 feet had a, a great project management solution that Smartsheet didn't have, so it fit well within their portfolio. That was just a, a great example of a larger company that that had a need and and was able to plug it in. Okay, and so uh, let's talk about you know traction and how you're working with clients because I'm sure our audience is curious to know kind of what services you're providing and how you engage with those organizations or is it like matchmaking like find someone to sell and find somebody who wants to buy? Or are you advising them on how to get the house in order? What what kind of services are you and uh, providing to your clients? Yeah, we we I'm happy to talk to people at any stage in the process. They might say we're a year out, two years out, three years out. That's fine. I mean, we we often people that we work with officially we've known you know for four, five, six, ten years, and so happy to just provide free advice and kind of an assessment of of where they sit and and some things to to work on. But then once we formally engage. We do a lot of research on the potential buyers. We look at segments of potential buyers, like, you know, would this be a European company that would acquire you because you've got a big footprint in the US? So it would be geographic expansion. You know, there are companies that that might have a hole in their product line that you fill. And there might be people that sell quite different solutions, but to the same customer set. So this is a, uh, you know, it's another another arrow in their quiver that they could sell to the same client base. So we look at, uh, I, we take the perspective and just kind of my experience on the buying side of why would I buy this company? Who would buy it? Like legitimately, why Why does this make sense? Create those segments, research all those companies, identify, you know, CEO, corp dev person. We'll research how many acquisitions have they done recently to kind of get a feel. We'll look at their, their stated strategy. We'll look at their number of employees. Are they growing? You know, how big are they? You know, do they have cash? So we analyze all of them. Uh, we've got about 300 
financial buyers, private equity firms that we work with on a regular basis that have platforms, if it's an add-on or have strategy thesis that, that might align with what the company is. And then we create a, a confidential information presentation. Again, ours is very different than, than what the bankers put together. Bankers tend to put together, you know, two-tone, uh, hundred page thick <laughs> documents dense with facts, right. right? Okay. And then they, then they send that out and it's kind of like, Hey, if it's interesting, call us. We try to take the perspective to make it easy to understand why this company would make sense for you to accomplish your objectives. So a fair amount of work and it's, it's more of a, a, a marketing, like you'd market your, you know, again, I can't come back to people. I say, imagine putting together a hundred page two-tone deck on your product and spam it to clients. Who's going right. to buy that, right? I mean, not many people are going to read through that. So, so we put that together and then we do the outreach. We do a fireside chat. We'll pre-qualify them to make sure they're legit buyers. Fireside chat with the founders. Uh, we'll get uh, preliminary indications of interest. You know, how much would they pay? How would it be structured? Source of funds, approval, due diligence track. And then we'll work towards LOIs, you know, sign and close and Refresh your bank account till the money shows up. That's <laughs> just sit there. Click, 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 click. <laughs> then drink yeah, champagne. Right. Yeah. So of all of that, I'm curious, what's your favorite part? What's the part that is the juice for you? You know, I, yeah, that's a good question. I, I guess I, I know I'm probably bad. I always give more than one answer, but um, <laughs> the the research is kind of fun. It's it's I like getting to know the founders. We've got a pretty. I mean, we we work with high. They're all smart, high integrity driven people. It's fun to get to know them and their journey. It's fun to help them have a, a wealth event, you know, and, and get to the next stage in life. And, and all of our former clients are, are they're friends, honestly. I mean, we'll, we'll stay in touch forever. So it goes beyond even the, the professional side. And, and personally, we get pretty attached to people. I think so there's the upfront is, is there's a creative process that's interesting. The middle is kind of a, it's a grind to work through and get it down to the short list. But then negotiating there are hundreds, you know, people think about how much will I get for my company, but structure often matters more than, than the price. Uh, there are things like negotiating the non-competes, there, there are retention bonuses, <clears throat> there, you know, what's your, what's your position, what's your title, there are tax, there, there are lots of little things in the negotiation. I really enjoy that. And, and part of it is I, 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 in many cases, I've got as much or more experience buying companies as the buyer. So even though I represent the seller, I will coach the buyer based on mistakes I've made in the past. And this seems like a good idea now, but here's why that may not work well a year from now. So trying to craft <clears throat> agreements that work well for both sides is is a lot of fun. I, I get excited. I wake up and I'm I'm excited to to work on that stuff. It's excellent. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So let's switch direction here a little bit. We ask all of our guests two standard questions towards the end of each interview. And the first is simply as a founder uh, and a revenue executive, that makes you a target, sorry, prospect for a lot of people out there that are selling. And I'm always curious to know uh, when somebody doesn't have a referral into you, right? I mean, you have an extensive network of very powerful people, but somebody wants to get into you, they don't have a referral. What works for you when they're trying to capture your attention? and earn the right to time on your calendar? Yeah, I, I actually will keep sometimes, you know, I, I, I think we are all wired to delete emails as <laughs> quickly as we can, right? Just to keep your inbox clean. And I, there's nothing, and it's where I spend a lot of time when I'm reaching out. And so I have a lot of respect when someone does a good job on the inbound. And I'd say it's pretty rare that people message it correctly. But I guess my, my, my thoughts would be someone who taps into 
it, that, that it feels like they understand a problem that I have and they tap into it right away and they offer a legitimate solution. I mean, for example, you know, in our, our, our career, you know, finding, you know, companies don't sell very often, right? Typically they sell once in their lifetime, right? And it might be in five or 10 years. So, so identifying and getting in front of those companies around the time they're interested in selling is, is a large part of, of what we do. So if someone reaches out and, and taps specifically into that, you know, we, we understand you know, look, get in front of prospects. I'm not articulating very well right now, but if they can, like if the first sentence, they zero in on that and it's, there's no BS or fluff, they've earned the right that I'll read another sentence. Um, <laughs> and at some point I'll think, mm, this looks pretty good. And I'll counter that with what most people do is one, they try to be nice. Hope you're having a good day. They don't really care if I'm having a good day. <laughs> My name is so-and-so. They don't care who you are. My company is this. I don't care what your company is, you know. And then they go through a very probably accurate but but boring description of what their company does, and it just doesn't work. I think you have to get into the head of the person that's receiving it and understand what what are the things that's driving them crazy that they need to solve. Is it driving revenue? Is it driving cash flow? Is it you know whatever it might be? And the very first sentence should address that in a way that they can relate to, and then. Even the subject line matters, right? Because you're you're earning more time. So yeah, I, I talk a lot about that. But it's a, I'm a big believer in you know that that old saying: apologize for the length of my letter. Right. I didn't have time to write a short one. Yeah. Write a short one, and then people will read it. I find sometimes the the emails that are literally one sentence, like that's it. Like if you get a one sentence email, you always read it because no one sends a one sentence email, and you're kind of like, okay, that's it. Like so. Versus a lot of people try to explain right. everything. You know, you're, well, I don't go on and on, but you're, I think your goal is, is, is to get their attention, ideally get a response. It's not to explain everything. They're just yeah, not going to read it. That's all. a great, that's a great piece of advice because it is a, it is a touch point. It is one step in a longer, hopefully conversation. So you don't have to dump it all into the email. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, love exactly. It. Right, so our last question, we call it our acceleration insight. If there was one thing you could tell, uh, and I'll just go with SaaS CEOs since that's what we were talking about. If there's one piece of advice you could give SaaS CEOs that you believe would help them hit their targets. What would it be and why? Yeah, I well, in the broader picture, I, I interact with like hundreds of like early stage companies and most are product focused people, right? They see a problem and they develop a solution or product. And I think they underestimate how difficult it is to generate awareness and interest and engagement and ultimately like just to sell it, like to ramp sales. So one, I, I, I encourage people like, like focus on the revenue. Revenue is everything. And then the simplest tip I give people is, you know, it's give or take, you know, 20% of the, of your potential clients are actively looking for a solution, right? It might be 10, it might be 30%, you know, 80%. Aren't. They have the problem, but they're not actively looking. I see a lot of people, they just they just pick 10 clients and they beat their heads against the wall with the eight that that aren't actively looking. You can eventually convert them and there are ways to do that. But what used to keep me up at night was there are people out there that want my solution that don't know it exists. So generate awareness, try to identify what's the profile of the company that you sell to? What is the title of the decision maker? And then find someone or do it yourself. Find every one of those companies. Find everyone with that title as a decision maker 
and then get the right message in front of them. And then if you can simply get, and again, it's got, you've got to articulate the right message, you know, why they should care, how it's going to help them, not what you do. You'll get interest from people that are actively trying to solve that problem. And they're just way easier to sell to than the people that have eight other things ahead of that love problem. It, love it. So Lola, if um, people want to talk more about these topics, is there a specific place you want us to send them or a way you want them to get in touch? Yeah, uh, LinkedIn is great. Lil Rickles on LinkedIn. I've got some materials posted on there too that that people might find helpful. Feel free to email direct me directly at uh, Lowell L O W E L L at tractionadvising.com. and uh, feel free to check out our website as well. So uh, tractionadvising.com. Perfect. Well, I can't give you enough for taking time. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, everybody. You know the drill. That does it for this episode. Hit us at b 2 